Hey, ladies. I'm Jen Chappelle, and you're listening to In Sisterhood, where I share my real talk conversations with female entrepreneurs and other inspiring women, first here in Knoxville, then the world. Well, we've just wrapped up our second week of homeschool over here. My kids are learning about the life cycle of a frog, the layers of the earth, and the appropriate uses of the fuck word. (laughs) We're also doing this sound of the week for my son. It's something he would have done in the three-year-old class at Montessori, just like his sister did when she was there. So we have this tray in our school area where we collect things from around the house or from nature that start with the sound of the week. So far, we've done S for sits bath and T for telehealth. And next week is the short A sound, as in asshat, anti-racist, and anxiety. Got to figure out how to fit those on the tray. (laughs) Today, I'm sharing my conversation with Dr. Patricia N. E. Robertson. She's an assistant professor in the College of Nursing at the University of Tennessee, and she's the host of the podcast, Attached. Her research focuses on how marriages and families impact health for low-income and rural populations. And her podcast, which is co-hosted by two of her colleagues in Iowa and Texas, focuses on making relationship science approachable by discussing relationships in pop culture and by using research to filter out the good relationship advice from the bad. I love Patricia's podcast, and I was so grateful for the opportunity to hear her story and talk with her about relationships, support, and our health. You'll hear some really great relationship advice peppered throughout our conversation, too. So grab a notebook and a pen and tighten up the old earbuds. Here's me and Patricia chatting on In Sisterhood. Working at UT as an assistant professor, I mean, UT just went back, didn't they? Yeah, students back uh, got back uh, yesterday, actually. Wow. Okay, so are you teaching in person or virtually? Yeah, thankfully, I'm teaching virtually at the College of Nursing. All of their graduate um, programs are all online. So we were actually online before this pandemic ever hit. So that transition uh, very luckily was quite easy for um, me and my fellow like graduate um, faculty. So I'm teaching online. Um, it launched and we'll see what, what happens. It launched yesterday. So no complaints yet. Awesome. <laughs> Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And what has changed with the way that you do your podcast, if anything, since COVID has started? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, my two co-hosts, Sarah Woods and Jacob Priest, are um, 
neither of them live in Tennessee. One's in Iowa and one's in Texas. So we have always recorded long distance. I think the thing that definitely has changed is um, it's a little bit harder to find time when my kids and uh, their children aren't running around um, the house making additional noise, as we can all relate to. Um, and, and also, you know, in terms of content, trying to, um, we, in, in our podcast, we oftentimes try to find research and, um, break it down for our listeners, research about relationship science and relationship health and break it down for the listeners and do some take homes that could be useful for them and their marriages and family and, and friendships. But with COVID, you know, there are a lot of things that um, we're all under so much more stress. So there are a lot of things that maybe not might not be applicable, right? Like when mm-hmm. you're really stressed out, going and hanging out with friends might not be something that we can do right now, um, mm-hmm. at least not in um, at, at the similar capacity that we used to. So, so finding things and research that can help people in this moment um, is something that we're really striving to do. I think the concept for your podcast is like is so awesome. Oh, thanks. Uh, you're welcome because we do get so much bad relationship advice, and we see a lot of. You know, like the drama in relationships yes. is what is broadcast. <laughs> yes, um, the fighting particularly. Yes. The fighting and the passionate uh, lovemaking afterwards. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of times we haven't necessarily been taught how to have a, air quotes, productive right. fight or how to communicate like grievances in that way. Um, you know, just depending on the environment in which we've grown up and mm-hmm. then the things that we see on TV and in the media. So I love that you guys, you know, take this like piece of bad advice and like find some research and say, well, actually, here's here's something better. Here's a better way. There's a better way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's so useful. Thank you. One of my one of my favorite. Um, bits that we um, have shared in the past is this saying, um, don't ever go to sleep angry, right? We always mm-hmm. hear this. And it's also depicted in in movies. You know, we have it. Um, uh, it's kind of doubled down in movies, this saying that we see, but there's absolutely no research to support it when you're exhausted. And when you're so angry that you're seeing red, there's absolutely no reason to continue uh, an argument. Then it will be non-productive and it'll probably really damage a relationship. It's always okay to take a break, calm down, sleep, and then come back and revisit the, the argument or the discussion, however you want to frame it, when you're you're both more level-headed um, and you're both um, can are calm enough to listen to the other the other person, it's really one of my favorite ones to perpetually debunk because it's such horrible advice. Never go to sleep angry. It's so bad. I think my mom gave me that bit of advice yes. when I was getting married, and I mean. You know, like when you get flooded yeah. with that emotion, you can't sit and listen and you can't see the other person. You can't see where the other person is coming from because you're so like entrenched yeah. in your own feelings. 
Absolutely. And and when you're that flooded, there's a, a actually a physiological response. Your heart rate is so high, it actually cuts off functioning to your frontal lobe. Um, so it, it's not just like, oh, you're too emotional thing. It's it's literally a physiological thing, both men and women. And and you 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 can't think in in a proper logical way when you're when you're that frustrated. How did you and Sarah and Jacob come up with the idea for the show? So Sarah, Jacob, and I have been uh, working collaboratively on research for almost a decade now. Wow. We publish a lot together. Um, We've written grants together. And we have this, we've had this standing meeting for probably about five years, once, maybe even more, once a week where we talk about the research that we're currently doing. We um, talk about where we, the direction we want our research to go. And because we're such good friends, oftentimes it devolves into <laughs> ranting about um, <laughs> ranting about ridiculous stuff out there or what's been on Twitter or also gushing <laughs> about the latest TV show we saw. And so um, about a year and a half ago, um, and we really enjoy, I mean, I enjoy them a lot. I hope that they enjoy me too. But I always laugh when we we talk. It's a very enjoyable conversation. So about a little over a year ago, I just said, hey, you guys, I have this idea for a podcast. Um, what do you think? So I just floated the idea and they jumped on board, Jacob with both feet right in the deep water and Sarah tentatively with a toe saying, okay, we'll see how this goes. And we, we took off and it's, it's so much fun. So often in, in work or my work, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stress and there are a lot of no's and there's a lot of banging your head up against walls for in terms of research and getting funding and getting publications. But this podcast is a way to get all of this research out to real people. You do it in a fun way while we incorporate pop culture. And it really, really is a a joy for me doing the research that I love, but doing it in a way that feels a lot more productive and I get to laugh as well. There's nothing better than laughing. Oh my gosh, I love it. I mean, well, maybe there are better things, but you know, not many. I, I mean, I really not good. many. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's it's so much fun, and I tell you, when I go back and edit um, and and listen to things that Sarah or Jacob say, I just crack up. So I joke with them. I'm like, even <laughs> if we only ever did this podcast just for the three of us, I would love it and still do it forever and ever because it's just such a joy for me. <laughs> I think that is so important, especially because like podcasts depending on how you want it to sound and what your format is like, it can take a while to, you know, edit it and massage Mm -hmm. it and everything. Um, And then you're not really, it's not a cash cow. Right. Um, It's a labor of love. You really have to love what you're doing and love the discussion and the experience of it. And it sounds like you are like totally on board with that. 100%. 100%. I'm curious to know, like, you being here in Tennessee, you said Sarah's in Texas yes. and Jacob is in Iowa? Yeah. Ha- those are, like, three random places. How did you guys meet? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. So, um, Jacob and I met uh, when in our master's program um, at Purdue in Northwest Indiana. Um, we both got our master's in marriage and family therapy. 
and um, we were there for two years. And I knew of him. I didn't, and we we knew each other, but I, we didn't really do research at that time together. And then um, Jacob got his PhD at uh, Florida State University in the Marriage and Family Therapy Program there. And that's where he met Sarah. Um, so him and Sarah got their PhDs together. And a lot of my friends, I never went, I didn't go to Florida State, um, but a lot of my academic colleagues slash friends all went to Florida State. So um, that would be the group of people I hung out with. And that's how I got to know um, Sarah. And Sarah and Jacob started doing research together. And I liked the research that they were doing a lot. So I um, maybe strong-armed my way into that <laughs> that research relationship. I said, no, no, no. I want to be a part of this research too. Let me join you. And kindly, they did let me join them. So just academia is how we how we met, I guess. All you smart people. Smart researchers <laughs> hanging out together. Hanging out together. Yeah, you would be surprised how uh, stupid the conversations are for how many degrees we have among us. <laughs> I'm curious to know what kinds of research you're doing. Yeah, so but most of my research focuses on how marriage and family is linked to health outcomes. So very broadly, looking at how family and marital relationships are linked to Number of comorbidities like heart disease, diabetes, um, stroke, so on, um, but also uh, self-appraised health. Like, how healthy do you feel? How uh, w- how would you consider your overall health? Um, more, like sense of well-being. Yeah, a little bit less mental health and a little bit more overall physical okay. health, though we know that physical health and depression and anxiety, um, mental health are very closely linked. Mm-hmm. Um, so more recently, I've been focusing a lot more on specific diseases. So I have a project with the Cancer Institute at the University of uh, Tennessee looking at um, caregiver relationships and breast cancer patients and how those relationships during the first year of treatment impact pain, fatigue, and um, overall health as well and depression and anxiety. So kind of um, quality of life measures. And that's, Mm -hmm. um, that's an ongoing study right now that I'm really excited about. And we're getting the first couple of papers out. And as we kind of would expect that relationship with the family member or spousal partner um, who we're calling a caregiver is really influential on the patient's pain, depression, and anxiety throughout that first year of, of treatment. So we know that social relationships are really, really important. And we're finding that it's also important in among breast cancer patients as well. So the second kind of specific disease that I'm looking at is diabetes, specifically diabetes management. Mm. Um, and I, I'm looking more in in uh, rural Appalachia for that and trying mm-hmm. to simultaneously harness the power of telehealth for diabetes education and my knowledge of family systems and the importance of social support um, to implement an intervention 
among these families in, in rural Appalachia who have more limited access to health uh, care resources to improve their diabetes management and also improve the social support around managing their diabetes. Diabetes is kind of a, a unique disease in that it is managing that disease is, is uniquely tied to um, food and food is so uniquely tied to um, family and culture um, mm-hmm. and marital relationships because as, as human beings, we very rarely eat alone. We usually mm-hmm. eat in social settings and groups and how our relationship with food is so often determined by how we were raised and the culture that we currently live in our house and how they perceive food as well. So kind of tying all those bits together to help improve diabetes management for people who have you know, fewer resources to this diabetes education. Wow. That is like some really fascinating stuff. You know, I come from I come from the mind body camp. Yes, as a, as a massage therapist, oh, cool. as a former yoga teacher, now just general movement educator, I would say. Um, and to think that you know the relationships that we have in our lives and the social circle that we run in and the the support or lack thereof that we have, obviously those have a big effect on mental health. But to think about the ways that those relationships impact our more physical health is yeah. um it's pretty cool to think about. Yeah, relationships are important, you know. I, I think that um it's something that I keep harping on and on about. And sometimes I, I get resistance with physicians who maybe rather just deal with the patient um, and not a family-centered um, treatment plan. But um, it's kind of mine and and Sarah and Jacob's long-term mission is try and um, at least shift the paradigm for, for some people um, that family is really, really Family and, and marriage and, and social support are really important for how for our long term health. I mean, this is not just um, a happenstance link. We know that there are physiological mechanisms causing this, but causing this link between family and health. The your inflammation in your body is linked to relationship quality, which is inflammation is is linked to all of these um, devastating health outcomes, heart disease, metabolic diseases. Um, There is some indication that inflammation in the body is linked to cancer. And also your capacity to actually heal a wound is linked to inflammation. So stress from these relationships, especially if it's chronic stress. Now we're not talking about just one fight with your partner or one fight, but chronic um, relationship stress can really impact your long-term health in, in, in a variety of ways. I am glad that you distinguished between, you know, stress from a fight and chronic stress because my immediate thought was like, oh my gosh, I just had a, a fight with my husband this uh, morning. So like, am no. I more inflamed? <laughs> um, but <laughs> it's also causing me to wonder in this time when we are having to be at home more, mm-hmm. Not everyone is safer at home. Not everyone has a, a leave it to beaver home life, we'll say. Right. So I'm curious if there are any numbers or research out there 
um, showing have people's health been like negatively affected by having to be in closer contact in these some of yeah. these more toxic relationships? I don't I don't know if we have that data yet. I know that there are a number of studies out there and we certainly will know know that soon in the next six months or so. Um, but theory would suggest that that would increase your stress and your physiological stress response, which could impact your health. Now, that's not to say that six months in a stressful relationship will mean in 10 years you're going to have diabetes. Mm. Um, but it might temporarily impact your immune system because inflammation also impacts your immune system, which might mean you're more susceptible to um, the, the the common cold or whatever kind of um, contagious type diseases that are out there. Um, there are other ways also to improve your immune system like sleep and exercise, but certainly um, trying, if that relationship is causing you a substantial amount of stress, trying to um, uh, navigate ways where you can um, minimize that impact of, of stress and um, trying to um, get out of the house, long walks, whatever, whatever it, it may be, to try and um, get some distance there. Yeah, I mean, it's this time has definitely not been easy, mm-hmm. um, but I do have a lot of gratitude for our situation and um, thankful that you know our home is a safe home and our relationships are strong and solid. And um, you know we've got we've got some privilege there with that. And absolutely, and, and yeah. I'm I'm so thankful for that. I am curious to know what all of your um what all of your degrees are because you know you mentioned marriage and family yes. and you're an assistant professor in the college of nursing so like do you have some healthcare degrees in there that's too? a great What's question going on? that's a great question so um i have a, a master's in marriage and family therapy i have um a phd in child and family studies and i have a second master's in statistics but i actually don't have a degree in in healthcare all of my research has looked at health outcomes and i've worked collaboratively with a lot of um, med doctors over my career. So because my research is so closely tied to health outcomes, the College of Nursing um, here at UT asked me to apply for um, a faculty position. And I did. And thankfully, I got the, the position. So it really is based purely on my my uh, program of research that I'm able to work in the College of Nursing. And nurses are particularly um, unique because when working with a nurse from a research standpoint and working with a a med doctor, and this is not um, all the time, but more likely than not, nurses understand the power of family and and marriage. I, I don't have to go on my long diatribe um, with with <laughs> nurses about why family is so important, they usually uh, understand it and buy it right off the bat. And that's because nurses are usually in the room with the patient and the family for much, much longer periods of time than a doctor ever 
would be when we're thinking about um, hospitals, at least. So I love working with all of these nurses because they um, understand the research, they support the research, and it's I don't have to talk them into um, buying that family and marriage are important. What is it like having to try to convince a medical doctor who is probably a male <laughs> uh, that you know what you're talking about? Well, thankfully, I think in the beginning, I've kind of gotten a little bit better at it. But in the beginning, they a lot of doctors were like, okay, but also we're going to do my research question, which is this, which is looking at medication or looking at wound healing. And I was like, yeah, but all of this research suggests that this is important. They're like, yeah, you can do your psychosocial stuff. That's fine. But I also want to do this. So I, I think because I was willing to do the legwork of all the patient recruitment and all of the data analysis and the paper writing and all of the grant writing, um, they kind of from their point of view, let me do my psychosocial stuff. Which, listen, I got my foot in the door. I was, I was, it's notoriously hard to get your foot in the door at some places. So I was like, fine, well, we'll do it. At least I'll be able to do my research. But more recently, thankfully, um, I've had a lot of people um, buy in and are on on my side of, of this and are excited to look at both the patient and the caregiver. They are really seeing that this is the cutting edge of, of research at this point. So they've started to come to me now um, asking if I would include some family measures or include some psychosocial measures um, in, a, in a study measure, you know, like survey measures or something. Um, so that's been nice, but, you know, certainly sometimes it feels like a good old boys club that I certainly <laughs> do not, um, not only do I not fit into it, but I find it ridiculous. So it's difficult for me to <laughs> um, have patience with it also. Um, so that's something that I continually try to be better at is hiding like my initial face, you know. <laughs> um, but hopefully the longer I work at this, I won't have to um, – worry so much about buying them into my side of of um, family is important. It's almost like you need, um, you know, people used to carry around pictures in, in their wallet and there's like the joke of, you know, you open up your wallet and this like whole big train of pictures mm -hmm. falls out. It's like you need to have like a wallet with like this whole big train of degrees right. and research <laughs> and, and everything. Like here, I know what I'm talking about. Look at the wallet. Um. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which which I have to do from from time to time. Um, I just um, so for example, I'm working on this um, study right now. It's about diabetic foot ulcer. So people with diabetes sometimes because they don't have they have poor circulation, they get these sores on their feet, and mm -hmm. because of they have poor circulation, they they it's really hard for them to heal. Um. And like I said before, inflammation in the body is part of that process. So one of the projects I've been trying to do is there's a lot of research about how marriage and family relationships are linked to inflammation, but there's not like there hasn't been like a practical application of that yet. So I'm really wanted to see if I could um, connect relationship quality and healing of diabetic foot ulcers, because if I could connect that in just a study, it would really be um, 
a practical application that we're looking for for all of this research. So I went to one of the doctors at UT um, Med and I gave him this, I think if I would have come to him and just told him what I just told you, he would have said, okay. But what I did was I, like, it kind of sounds pie in the hot sky in the pie, pie in the sky, pie in the sky. There we go. Um, <laughs> pie in the sky. What? Um, <laughs> when I wrote this huge detailed, um, uh, you know, proposal and sent it to him and he he remarked that it was very, very well written. It was very well cited. And he had no pushback at all. And in fact, yesterday he came to me and said, I think I have an idea for this study that you that we're doing right now. Um, can I send it to this other company to see if they'll fund it for us? He was like, it was so well written. I would really like to do that. I was like, sure. So I also think that I've been lucky in that... Um, I've written enough stuff to where um, they can't dispute it, right? Like I, they, there's enough research that they can't really dispute it at face value. I mean, they might in their head, but not directly to my face. Um, so I'm fine with that. Like, just let me do what I want to do. <laughs> you can like think horrible thoughts about me, whatever, but just let me do the research I want to do. How does that feel? Like, you know, thinking that there are people that, oh gosh, you know, like for me personally, I have a hard time when I know that people are thinking poorly of me or thinking that I don't know what I'm talking about or, you know, even if they're people that I don't know or that I realize you know, these people don't, that we don't have the same values. So it's probably fine if we're not like buddy, buddy, you know, um, it's still, that's still something very hard for me. That's very hard for me. Um, have you felt comfortable? Um, or have you felt like you've had a thick skin for mm. most of your tenure here in academia? That's a great or question. have you, have you developed it? Definitely not. And there, so, I mean, I think, that so in academia you get a lot of no's like you get papers rejected you get grants rejected all the time and these are things that you pour your blood sweat and tears into and then you send it off Uh, let's say you send a paper off and it gets reviewed anonymously by these three or four people that you have no idea who it is and they just rip it apart Mm. it's hard you get mad you um you feel unvalued. Sometimes you get embarrassed. Um, and then you have to shove that all down and get it and do all of their changes because you need a paper published. And, and with grants, I mean, you have to get a grant in order to get tenure and promotion and grants are so hard to get. It's like a 10% success rate and it's a skill that it's very, very challenging. So I do get a lot of no's. It's very, very hard to to hear them. I always take a couple of days. Sometimes there are tears involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but with projects like this, when I'm collecting data and I'm trying to figure out like what the difference is, like why I'm so I've been so determined for this diabetic foot ulcer study. I think in my mind, I am convinced that this is um, a groundbreaking project. 
which I know sounds like really weird, but there are very few things in my head that I'm like, this is a good application. This is a good idea. So I just hit the ground running and I don't accept no for an answer. Like I keep on trying until I get it. And I think that same energy I apply to grants and the papers, but when I get those no's, it's devastating. But then I, you have to take a, take a couple of minutes, couple of days, whatever it is, and pick yourself back up and, and try it again. One of my mentors, Christy Gordon, said, in order to be in academia, you have to have this fire in your belly to do this research because no one is ever going to hand you anything. No one is ever going to make it easy for you. You have to have this passion to do this research and answer questions. And some days I think I have that and other days I don't. Don't get me wrong. There have been times when I am crying to my husband, like, I think I have to quit this job. (laughs) Like, I think Mm. I have to find something else. And my husband is like, maybe take a couple of days. (laughs) (laughs) Let's think about this. And I'm like, fair point. And then, of course, I'm like, bounce back. Um, But there's some times when I'm just determined and and I do it and other times stuff knocks me down on, on, on um, my back. And um, because you have this support system or I have this support system around me of my husband and my academic friends like Sarah and Jacob, um, they hype me back up. Um, I like to think I do the same for them and go out and conquer the, conquer this academia, academic world again but I definitely wouldn't be able to do that if I was all by myself and I felt isolated and lonely. I think I have that support system and it helps me get through those times. What are the ways that your friends and your family show up for you that make you feel the most supported? So that's a great question. Um, So I think some of my academic friends, they allow me that area that space to vent and just like rage at ridiculous things and ridiculous people and ridiculous stuff and they validate it they're like yes that's ridiculous that should not have happened that always feels good because sometimes when you get really frustrated at things for me I think wait is this an overreaction am I being crazy like you know what I mean like I think yeah. we're I think we're conditioned particularly as women to not trust our emotional reaction to things. Um, Mm -hmm. And I definitely am guilty of that sometimes. But I have close friends in academia who also understand academia, right? Like, I think that's important. And I have friends who don't, and they're wonderful, and they let me vent, and they're like, yeah, that sucks. I'm like, thank you. You you don't fully (laughs) understand, but I appreciate this. And so that's the the letting me and the validation, I think, is, is wildly helpful. And I think my husband will, um, also provide the let's take a beat let's think about this and then he brings the rationale like you literally are not trained to do anything else <laughs> like what <laughs> like what else are you going to do that gives you the freedom and the time flexibility of academia to like research whatever you want and like work from home whenever you want i'm like this is these are all good points this is fair you're absolutely right um <laughs> i'm not sure what else i would do <laughs> You're do right. you ever feel like, um, you know, like, so a lot of the people in your like academic support 
group, let's say, yeah. not an actual support group, but right. you know, yeah. circle, support circle. Of support. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, we'll go with that. Um, a lot of them are like trained in this, you know, marriage and family yes. therapy. And they have this like, like background of like, I could be a counselor. I am trained as like a counselor. Do you ever, do you ever like when you're talking to them or venting or whatever, do you ever pick up on them kind of going through the motions of like, I know right now I'm supposed to empathize and oh. make, you know, th- or does it feel? No, it feels completely genuine. And they both, okay. pra- they both practice therapy right now. Specifically, I'm talking about Jacob and Sarah and it's amazing. They are both amazing therapists and I'm sure they use their skills. The remaining skills I have, I use for, for empathy whenever they're, um, venting as well. This is not one directional. This is a bi-directional thing or tri-directional <laughs> thing. And we talk about it. I think it's, it's funny because one time I was talking with me and a colleague, we're talking who both are, do couple research. We're talking to someone in nutrition. She was faculty in nutrition. She was talking about how she was talking. She, she was relaying another conversation she was having with the faculty in nutrition about how he's eating really unhealthily and they were discussing things about his diet and how to change it. And I thought, I was like, oh my gosh, that's something I would never bring up to a colleague is their diet and my recommendations for them how to change it. Like that seems wildly out of bounds. I said, but I assume it's very much the same for me and my friends who are all marriage and family therapists, we can very objectively talk about family situations, marital situations, and uh, talk about it in terms of problem solving and, and things like that in a um, practical and solution-oriented way that's not at all offensive. It's helpful. It's um, all of those things. But I think that anybody else in another field <laughs> might think that it's <laughs> wild uh, breaking of boundaries, but that's not the case for us, I guess, because it's what, it's what we do. It's what we research. It's what we talk about all day. We're just now applying it to ourselves. I want to know when you decided that academia was it for you. Mm. Um, I think it was, so both of my parents are uh, faculty. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of in my blood. My mom graduated with her PhD when the same year I graduated with my high school diploma. So I was wow. able to see my mom through a lot of my childhood, the vast majority of my, my memory at, at least, getting her master's and getting her PhD. So I was very familiar with the process. Um, and my dad is also faculty. Um, so that seemed like uh, a, a natural jump. My, my, my parents are in the hard sciences, though. I am not. I'm very much in the social sciences. Um, the soft sciences. The soft sciences, as they say. <laughs> but at the same time, I wasn't sure. That's why I went and got my degree in marriage and family therapy, because it was a terminal degree. So if I ended up not getting my PhD, I would still have a degree that I could use, right? It wasn't like a master's in, I don't know, something like English or something where there's not, not much I can do with that. Like it's not a terminal degree, right? Mm-hmm. So 
I purposefully got that master's in marriage and family therapy so I could get a license if I wanted to practice. Um, but then I ended up getting a PhD as well um, and wanting to go into academia because I realized that I wasn't nearly as good at therapy in the in the room therapy as I was at thinking about therapy and thinking about how to improve therapy and thinking about how to apply therapeutic practices. I'm much mm. better at the meta stuff than the actual application in the room. Um, and maybe I would have gotten better if I had stayed with it longer, but I wasn't interested in <laughs> working on getting it better. Um, <laughs> so I think it was kind of a slow march in, in, in one direction. And I took a couple of turns here or there, but ended up in this, in this direction. And, you know, it's, it's surprising. I, I definitely didn't take the straight trajectory to, to academia because my, my husband also works at the University of Tennessee. So we thought we were going to have to move. Um, so I ended up getting a postdoc in, in clinical psychology and worked there for about two years. And then I got a job at UC Davis and I worked as, as, as an assistant professor and I worked there for two years and commuted back to Knoxville, um, which was exhausting. And then thankfully I got um, this job in the College of Nursing. Um, so I'm able to stay in Knoxville, hopefully for, for a while. Um, but it wasn't always a guaranteed thing that I would get this faculty position because of the constraints of, um, of, of family and also as you kind of alluded to earlier, my research is really looking at health outcomes, but my training is much more on the, on the social family marriage side. So I'm kind of um, very much in my person an interdisciplinary researcher. Um, and interdisciplinary researchers sometimes have a hard time finding a home in one department, right? Because your, your research is across multiple departments. So sometimes it's hard to find a position in one department. And thankfully I did. It sounds like you are such a, a big picture thinker that, you know, you can't just constrain your, um, your interests to one category, um, that you want to see how things are connected across categories, uh, uh, across um, boundaries and things like that. Has that been a part of your, the way that you see yourself? Has that been a part of how you see yourself um, for a long time? Or is that something that mm. you've learned about yourself recently? So, um, marriage and family therapy as a field teaches us systems theory is kind of the basis of it, where all things are connected, right? How I behave is linked to how my partner behaves. Um, and we're all interconnected in this, in this system, which is very, very different than how psychology and sociology think and frame research questions. It's much more individualistic for, um, psychology, we can study the same thing, couples and families, but it always ties back to an individual in, in, in psychology where sociology is much more society level, right? It's not, we're not going to narrow down. So I think because I have that training as a systems thinker, um, and I was attracted to it right from, the, from the beginning, it, it makes sense that all we're, 
all of this is interconnected. It, it clicked for me. However, my brain works. It clicked well for me. But it's challenging because um, a lot of the people I work with in the disciplines of psychology and medicine aren't trained as systems thinkers. Um, they're trained to focus on the individual. And sometimes in medicine, they're trained to focus on the or the one organ in mm -hmm. the individual, right? That's changing, of course. Um, and there are some wonderful exceptions to that. Um, luckily, I work with people who are exceptions to that. But that can be um, challenging. I, I don't know... I think on the on the other side of that, you you say, you know, I'm a big thinker. And one of my grant writing mentors, um, who is amazingly kind and gentle with with me because I can get very sensitive about grant writing because it's so frustrating to me, said, Patricia, you are you think in big, huge pictures. And mm. that's not what grant writing is. <laughs> grant writing is very, very small um changes. I'm like, okay. So I do think in big, big pictures, but um, I'm working currently on how to, this is kind of been going to be, I think going to be my work for the next five years is how to take this big picture and find a very small aspect of that and mm. um, put it into a grant application so I can get funded. So it's this constant bouncing back and forth between the very, very small minutia of A causes B and how I'm going to change how I propose to change A to hopefully change B um, and then bouncing way back up into these big pictures. So it's not something I'm, I'm particularly good at yet, um, but I am working on it. <laughs> <laughs> and like that is slow work. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you're like you're in it for the long haul now. I know there's no turning back. Like my husband <laughs> said, like, I'm not really sure you're trained for anything else. It's so true. <laughs> so thinking about your, you know, you mentioned having to commute from Knoxville to UC Davis. Mm -hmm. I'm also curious to know, as you are buried in books and research, when you lift your head up out of the book, what's going on in your personal life? How has your personal life, you know, you're, you're married, you have kids. Where did all of that fall in, in all of the different, you know, degree programs and, and jobs and, and everything yeah. like that? So I had my, my two kids, one in my PhD and the other in my postdoc. Um, and then UC Davis came after that. I think I'm, um, particularly lucky because my husband is also in academia and you know, there, there's the, this, it, w not only is it hard to get a faculty position, like that's very challenging. The percentages are low. It's even harder to get to at the same university. So we knew going into this, that it was going to be challenging. We assumed that we would have to move at, at some point. So when I, got the job at UC Davis, we both kind of looked at each other and I was like, I, he was like, I think you have to take this. Like, I don't think there's ever going to be, there's no way you'd ever be able to come back to UT because also in academia, there's this idea that you don't hire your own graduate students. And because I graduated from UT, mm. you don't hire your own. So I had to go away in order to be able to come back. So, 
it was something that we both knew had to happen in order for us to have a job somewhere else at some point. Um, we both had to have a faculty position in order to leverage a position for one of us to be able to come back. Um, and at that point, I just had a postdoc. So I had to have a faculty position somewhere else to kind of prove that I can get a faculty position so mm -hmm. that we could eventually leverage either me getting a job wherever he got a job or vice versa. So that first year I was at Davis, I think my husband went on like five different interviews around the country. It was wild wow. um, while I was commuting. Um, and we were just busy for a while. We knew it was temporary. Um, we were just busy and tired for a while. The second year was a little bit harder um, because my kids were were young. I think they were like they, were, they must have been four and, and one when I started. But the second year, five and two, my five-year-old kind of started to realize that mommy was gone. Like it was mm. good that we did it while they were young because they didn't really, well, certainly my youngest didn't realize it. Um, but my oldest, the second year, um, started to, like every time I would almost leave, she started to cry or she would just also randomly cry mommy I don't want you to go so that Aww. second year was much harder and I'm very glad that I was able to get this um, college of nursing job so I didn't have to commute um, and genuinely I don't know if I could have done it a third year I was so tired and exhausted after that second year um, I don't know if my body would have allowed me to do it a whole a whole another year but it's amazing the things that you can do when you're determined for sure what was that schedule like? Were you there for the week and then you would come home for the weekend and have to try to like renegotiate the three hour time change in your sleep sleep cycle or what? So because I taught, I had a studio apartment and sometimes the second year I just did a cheap hotel, motel. Um, I would keep East Coast time. Like um, I wouldn't really try to change my, my schedule. I would just get to work at like 6 a.m. and then leave at five and basically go straight to sleep. So it wasn't, um, that wasn't, that wasn't really the hard part. Um, I usually would go cause I taught Monday, Wednesday, I would fly in Sunday night and then fly out Wednesday night was, was my schedule when I taught. Mm. Um, Davis was good because they knew that I commuted as well. So they tried to condense my schedule. So I didn't have to be there um, that often. And one of the classes, they let me teach online. So I would only go there once a month, which was nice. Um, but yeah, it was it was a little crazy for there for a little <laughs> while and, and kind of expensive. But we made it. The, the other reason why they let me commute is because my research was still in Tennessee. Like I still had connections with um, the Cancer Institute. All my research was with the Cancer Institute. Um, and remote area medical here in Knoxville. Um, so I could justify coming back here so frequently because all my research was here. So you, being trained as a marriage and family therapist, you know, you know, like the steps or like the makeup of healthy relationships. Yeah, sure. In theory. In theory. Yeah. And then, you know, 
this is a this commuting situation and having to kind of get the ducks in a row to have two faculty positions at the same university that can that's a lot of stress or like i'm feeling stressed yeah. um <laughs> you know <laughs> like just thinking about that and thinking about you know how did that time um did it did it put stress on your marriage and on your relationship with your husband on your relationship with your kids or do you feel like it um it just brought you, you as a family closer together so I think it was stressful for my husband and I in, individually, for sure. So when my husband and I first met, the first year we were dating, we lived apart as well. So mm -hmm. in that year, we developed a very effective communication pattern um, over text or over Gchat or over the phone, whatever our time schedules would allow. So we had that foundation of effective communication. Neither of us are terribly reactive people. We both are really good at, um, neither of us are terribly reactive people, particularly my husband. He's a very calm, steady person. Um, and, and we're both fairly good at recognizing when we're frustrated and, and tired and saying, you know, I'm tired right now, so let's have this conversation later. Mm. Um, I think we went into it knowing that it would be stressful as well and trying to prepare things like to make his job easier when he was single parenting here. Um, I would like if I was gone for two weeks, because sometimes I had to be gone for longer stretches, I would lay out two weeks worth of clothes and I would prepare two weeks worth of lunches for the kids and put that all in the, in the freezer and the refrigerator so that he didn't have to, so that his morning with the kids would be as easy as possible. Mm -hmm. So there were things that I did um, ahead of time um, to make sure that his life was um, easier while he was here. And then when I was back here, I did the majority of the parenting so that he could do more work. So we kind of had a, a flip-flop balance. And we did that intentionally. Originally, the plan was for us all to move to California and then him to commute back to UTK. But one, California is super expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but two, my husband is more of the homebody than I am. So, you know, I had this kind of thought in the in the shower one morning it's like why are we doing this we're doing all the kids are moving with me because that's what like society says that the kids are supposed to be with your mom um mm -hmm. but like that doesn't work for our relationship like you are definitely more of the homebody than i am i'm fine i'm more fine traveling than you are and he was like, yeah, that's a good point. So we decided to flip it where the, we all stay here and I'm the one commuting, which ultimately worked out well because we ended up staying here anyway. And, and our support system is here. It was a very, um, it was a really great example of sometimes society says one thing that what the way things are supposed to be but that just doesn't fit for you and your life and your family. So you have to kick it to the curb and say, and we're going to do what works best for our family and the temperaments of the people in our family. And that's what we did. That takes a lot of, you know, like 
groundedness in who you are and in your relationship and awareness to realize this is not one of our values. Like, you know, and to, to, to say not only is it not one of our values, it's, we're going to do the opposite. (laughs) Right. And I can tell you, it didn't feel like that at the time. It didn't feel like I was being groundbreaking. It felt like I was being stupid. Like, why didn't I think of this previously? Like, Mm. obviously this makes the most sense. Like I felt like a light bulb had gone off. Like, obviously, like, what are we even doing? And I called David, my, sorry, I called my husband immediately. (laughs) And I, I told him and he was like, Oh my God, you're right. Like, what are we doing? So we both were like, (laughs) what are we talking about? Like, this is the most ridiculous thing. Of course, we're going to do the other way around. That makes the most sense. So it's just that I think had it been the other way around, I think it would have been really, really stressful. I don't think I could have handled a new job, single parenting um, Mm. at all. Um, I think that would have been very, very stressful for me. And I don't think I would have done either one of them well. David already had tenure here. He was well-established here. And it was obviously hard. It was very, very challenging, but it was easier compared to the reverse. Did you get a lot of flack from other people or from any of your extended family for, you know, to dramatize it and air quotes, leaving your child behind? No, um, I actually got a lot of support. It was amazing to me when I said I... I'm going to have to work out of town. I'm commuting. How many friends came out of the woodworks and said, oh, I actually commute to work. I didn't know that. Like they commute to work or I know so-and-so or I had to commute for so long or I had to do this for, for so long. I think it is a lot more common than we think because people try to keep it under wraps for some some reason or because I think they were afraid of, of that. Um, judgment they mm. don't share a lot but i was really amazed with the with the support and how many stories i was told of families who who also do this um so yeah it was it was very um lovely and and again i don't think i would have been able to get through the, that two years without that support without without that i think if if people had been the opposite, it would have been much harder. I'm so glad to hear that, you know, you had that support. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, it was, it felt amazing. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) And so thinking about relationships, and let's shift gears kind of to relationships between women. You know, like we've got our friends and we've got our coworkers and we've got acquaintances. And I think we've talked about it on this podcast before. Not me and you, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Women have a reputation, uh, like a generalization for being, um, you know, catty or like mean girls, you know. And... I've I talked with Catherine Porth of Let Her Speak about this and she said that she encountered more cattiness or you know that like just kind of mean-spiritedness um between women in 
corporate America mm. as opposed to in like the entrepreneurial world. I'm curious to know about your experience in academia. That's a, a, a great question. I mean, I have had no, I guess I will caveat this. I have had no corporate or business entrepreneurial experience. I, and, and the vast majority of my um, experience has been in the field of kind of marriage and family kind of therapisty and, and some med, med doctors. Um, I think that there certainly can be cattiness, um, power struggles. What I have experienced is it's more with the older generation versus the younger generation. And mm. I'm not sure if that really is because of same gender or if it's because of um, personality and just some people are going to be a-holes. Um, <laughs> you know, and sometimes those people happen to be women and sometimes they happen to be men. I've experienced both men and women being um, not great human beings in academia. Um, but also, you know, the vast majority of people I work with, I think because of the given field, child and family studies, marriage and family therapy are women. Um, there are some men scattered about, but I think thankfully I've either successfully navigated away from those people. I'm thinking of some examples of grad in grad school of people being petty and, and horrible, um, we are also in our mid twenties in graduate school, <laughs> so I think sometimes that's just people are are worse when we're younger. Maybe we don't we're not fully mature enough. But I think thankfully I've been able to navigate away from those people and the people who treated me like that or treated me with rudeness. I thankfully have enough colleagues and friends where I don't have to associate with them. I think. Academia is small, but it's also big enough to where I can always find somebody else to work with. It's something that um, I don't necessarily tolerate well is people um, in a collaborative environment being rude and selfish and condescending. Um, I choose not to work with those people again, and I have enough access to a number of people where I can successfully do that. There have been very, very few times. I don't think any times where I think, Oh, I have to work with this person because they're the only person that, that does this research. Um, that's mm -hmm. just not true. They might think that they're the only person that does this research in the entire world for sure, but they're not. And I actively choose not to work with them. Like I've said before, this job has been so stressful. can be so stressful to me. I get a lot of no's. I, there are a lot of times I feel like I'm banging my head up against the wall. So colleagues, the temperament of colleagues, how I get along with colleagues is very, very important to me. If I'm going to go through this slog, if I'm going to get all of these no's, I am sh sure as heck going to like the people I work with. So it's something that I'm very purposeful of too, maybe. Um, mm. I, I'm sure other people have very, very different experiences, um, but it's something that I'm quite mindful of and very purposeful in choosing the people I work with and also actively choosing not to work with people again if I don't like that person. And this is not to say that like, oh, you have to make me laugh and you have to tell jokes, like none of that. You just have to be uh, a good human being who contributes to the team and like 
isn't condescending and rude to other people. You have and to then, audition to be Patricia's friend. <laughs> at least my work colleague. <laughs> yeah, that would be funny if I held auditions, right? Like, okay, now tell a joke. <laughs> and that is like the hardest thing when somebody is like, oh, you think you're funny? Tell me a joke. And then oh you're like, gosh. no matter what I say, it's going to fall so flat. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> So based on your experience and, and your research and your knowledge, um, are there ways that... So obviously, there are some physiological differences between men and women, um, male brains and female brains, or, you know, I don't want to like gender it too much because I like to be open to people's experiences, but there are there is research showing that you know, men and women process emotions differently or communicate differently. Um, and as far as, you know, how women build relationships, how women build connections with one another, um, is there anything from your experience or research that stands out that might be helpful for listeners? So I think that a lot of the research on gender differences would suggest that there are a lot more similarities between men and women than there are differences. So there, there, mm. if you look at the Venn diagram, that Venn diagram is there's a lot more sharing than there is, is not uh, in terms of characteristics. I think, you know, social support and social relationships, social networks, however you phrase that is important for both men and women um, for your long-term health and for the short-term well-being and long-term well-being. I think one thing we know about about research when we're thinking about this through more of a systemic lens is certainly women are are much better socialized to make friendships, to keep friendships together than than men are. Um, women are also tend to be socialized to kind of con- be the emotional center of families. We manage the emotional center of of family relationships. And also, we know that in, in, a, in a good amount of research that men compared to women tend to benefit more from marriage than women do. So one of <laughs> the reasons for that is because men tend to gain a huge social network when they marry. Um, and um, women tend to take on, have more responsibilities and stress when they marry. That, that's it's not for everybody, um, of course, but it's just general, general trends. So I think, you know, for men and women, social close relationships are important and are are critical. Um, keeping those relationships healthy. Um, how do you how do you do that? So um, one, think about um, communication. How are you communicating with people? One thing that we learned in last season of Attached is this thing called capitalization in friendships and in close relationships. So capitalization, this is one way to to communicate. Um, Capitalization is if I tell you some good news that happened to me, you are excited for me, genuine excitement. You might ask me questions. You are enthusiastic and excited for me. 
That's mm-hmm. called capitalization. So you're capitalizing on my good news, right? So that mm-hmm. capitalization is beneficial for both of us. One, you as my friend vicariously get to experience that positive um, affect, that positive feelings uh, through me, your genuine happy response. Um, you get that physiological positive impact as well. And then mm-hmm. for me, sharing that good news I get to, and and seeing your excitement and your genuine enthusiasm for me, I get to experience that um, positive affect, that positive physiological response a second time. So when we think of of support, I like to think of that capitalization research, that being um, enthusiastic for friends when they tell you good news, just being supportive, those little, it sounds so little and so tiny, but it really, really is, can be important, um, that, that positivity. And it also, you know, when someone tells us good news, we're all so super busy, we're on our phones, whatever. Sometimes it's really easy to dismiss it or ignore it or say, um, oh yeah, that's great. But knowing that research and in my friendships and in my close relationships, I try and be mindful because it takes like five seconds, right? It takes five seconds Mm -hmm. to like be in the moment and genuinely have an excited response for them. And then you can get back to your text message, right? Maybe it takes 10 Mm -hmm. seconds. But anyway, trying to, to, to be mindful of those moments and how to capitalize on those moments because it makes the friendship closer, those close relationships even closer. And it also allows you and your friend to have that positive uh, emotional and physiological response to to good mood news. So that's one thing I like to think about in trying to improve these relationships. And I kind of alluded to boundaries before. Um, and boundaries are are kind of what you are and aren't allowed to talk about in a friendship. And mm-hmm. just being very mindful and clear as to what those boundaries are, um, I think is important. Respecting people's boundaries are important. And sometimes in crisis or when something happens, those boundaries might change and being flexible and allowing those boundaries to change is, is really important. I think that that's part of also a healthy family system is boundaries changing when it, when it needs to, and then perhaps changing back, or maybe then it just changes permanently. And that's something that you now do as friends, or that's something you now do as, as family, but being flexible and mindful about what those boundaries are, how to respect them, and also knowing when it's appropriate to be flexible with those boundaries. Oh my gosh, I've, this is like ignited so <laughs> many, so many questions. Oh, um, I think it's like, it's super fascinating. And I'm, I'm so like grateful to hear you share about it. Um, so I'll start here. Okay. So when you're talking about capitalization, mm-hmm. um, that makes total sense. And for some reason, I went to, in my brain, you know, like when your kid does a thing that is underwhelming to an adult, um, but is something that you can tell, like, some they just made some sort of a connection. They think it's like the greatest thing ever. Um, they're like, mom, I put this block on the other block or like, look how I jumped or, you know, like, um, and 
you know, so there's only so many times in a day when you can be like, yay, I saw you. Wow. You worked so hard. Or, you know, like. <laughs> right. Because then yeah. it stops becoming genuine. Right. It, it, it stops becoming genuine. And so, you know, I mean, there's definitely a, a point of diminishing return, I would imagine, with capitalization, especially in, in one day. Um but making sure that that it is genuine, I completely agree. There's only so many times I can be super excited for my four-year-old jumping into the giant uh, pillow fort that he created. And I know that he's going to be very frustrated when I ask him to clean it up. There's only <laughs> so many times I could like be super excited about that giant, that giant jump. I, I, yeah, that's okay. It's okay to be genuine with your kids too, for sure. I'd get it. I get it. That's funny. <laughs> the other thing that I thought of, you know, you mentioned changing boundaries. Um, you know, when, when the environment changes, when things change, when a global pandemic hits, right. people's boundaries are going to shift and change. And so one thing that I'd like to talk about is, um, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I, I like to, get stuff out in the open. I don't enjoy beating around the bush or, um, you know, trying to be, I don't know. Sometimes when I try to be like diplomatic stuff, doesn't come out clearly. But so when talking about having a conversation about like, you know, renegotiating boundaries with another person or another family, um, let's say, you know, I think that COVID has highlighted differences in families, people who are taking certain precautions, people who are taking other precautions, or, you know, I don't want to go so far as to say it's like the maskers versus the anti-maskers or anything like that. But we are finding that some families that we're friends with are more comfortable doing certain activities right now. Um, and and other families are less comfortable with those activities. Right. So how can you, um, or can you speak about renegotiating boundaries, having conversations that are open and honest with people that don't necessarily value open and honest communication or who don't have practice with open and honest communication? So I I think that having open and honest conversations, particularly around boundaries, which can be challenging, you need to have that foundation of trust um, and, and love, right? So the only, it's so much easier to hear and take in criticism. And and that's not necessarily what this is, but, you know, sometimes people hear, I want to change things or I'm different from you. They hear it as criticism. But Mm -hmm. so the best way to hear it is if you know it's coming from a place of love, right? That you have that foundation with this person of trust and love, and you know that you, you trust them to not hurt you, and you know that they love you. So when you hear something that maybe is disappointing to them or they want to change, or um, it's easier for you to, t- to take that because you know they, lo- they love you. So I think that's first, and sometimes that's hard in, in a friendship that maybe isn't that long. Um, it's, it's not necessarily um, the, the, go- the go-to. The, the other thing, and this is more in family relationships, I guess, and, and not 
friend friendships that aren't as established, but certainly the best way to ensure that someone is not going to open up to you is to demand that they open up to you, right? Like, <laughs> no way. Like, I demand that you talk about boundaries with me. Guess what? There's no way you're having that conversation. Um, so I think when sometimes when you're having conversations, let's talk about like masks and safety around COVID. All you can do is say, this is what we feel safe doing. I understand that you don't, and that's completely fine. Sometimes I make a joke out of it. Like, yeah, we're, you know, we're super hypochondriacs over here. So (laughs) to lighten the mood, of course, but all you can do is say that these are my boundaries and this is what I feel comfortable with. And then your friends can either accept that or, or not. Um, And if they don't, then I'm terribly sorry, um, but this mm-hmm. is what we feel comfortable with. And hopefully after the pandemic, we'll, we'll be able to resolve this. But hopefully if they are friends um, for the, the long haul, they'll understand that people are just different and that's okay. Like my comfort with this is different than your comfort with this. Some the thing, the same thing can extend to children watching TV. Some people are comfortable with their children watching TV and other people, absolutely nothing, no TV. Mm-hmm. That's fine. That's what you're going to do with your family. That's absolutely fine. This is what I do with my family though. Um, so don't judge me for that. I'm definitely not going to judge you for that, but just respecting each other's boundaries in, in, in that capacity is all that we can do. Trying to change someone (laughs) like by demanding them change they're certainly definitely not going to change but if you do want to change someone the first step is always building that foundation of love and empathy and trust so that when it does come to the recommendation or the conversation of change they they feel safe in having that conversation and not criticized that's some that's some good truth there. That's some good wisdom, awesome. I feel like. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and speaking of COVID, mm. I would love to hear how your family kind of dealt with it or yeah. is dealing with it. How how things have changed. Um, what's it like working from home with your two kids? How old are they now? Uh, four and seven. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Getting there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what's it, what's it been like? So I would say that first month when I was, when me and my husband were both still teaching and, um, the kids were doing that online school was a nightmare. It was just a complete mess. My husband and I both had students, we had meetings, um, and, for whatever reason, my <laughs> wonderful uh, senior up people in my faculty wanted to have a lot of Zoom meetings just to check in to see how we're all doing. And I was <laughs> like, listen, one, this definitely could have been an email. Um, and two, <laughs> what, what do you think? I have two small kids. Like, do you really think I want to spend this time with you right now? I mean, obviously, I didn't say any of that. But that was like some bizarre <laughs> stuff that I was like, now is not the time to check in with me. Like, what is happening? Um, but I think, so, you know, my, my husband and I, we live, we, our family, we live about 30 minutes outside of Knoxville where we commute to. And 
I will tell you some silver linings of, of COVID is that I don't have to commute to work anymore. And I've been getting a heck of a lot more sleep than I normally do. I don't have to wake up so early to make sure the kids get into school and then we don't get back so late. So surprisingly, that has been a wonderful silver lining that um, I have been sleeping more than usual, which is kind of amazing and spectacular. Um, That's lovely. Lovely. And then come June-ish, we kind of decided to open up our bubble a little bit. And one of our um, friends um, watches kids in the summer. And we asked her if she would be willing and interested to open up her bubble and watch our kids, you know, um, three days a week or so. And she was, as long as we all practice proper safety and, and, and we all agreed. Um, so that was a huge help as well because we still had the summer, we still had more time with the kids, but my husband and I also had that three days a week where we could get work done, which was, which some we shit out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We really needed that. I mean, we're both still far behind, um, as where we need to be, um, but we're both far more rested than we have been in years, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. You said that your husband is more of a homebody. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that you miss going out on the town? Or I mean, I don't know if you went out on the town before <laughs> or not. <laughs> I definitely miss hanging out with friends for sure. Mm-hmm. That has been also something I haven't, I don't know why yet. I haven't, process that but for some reason i haven't missed um going out yet um Mm -hmm. i'm sure i will at at some point i think maybe i know that all the restaurants are closed and like like the things that i love to do when we're out i guess they're not really closed anymore but like they're not safe maybe um (laughs) like we used to go to plays and stuff like that like none of those things are available Mm-hmm. So I think that like, if I were to go out, like what would that, it would look very, very different. So maybe that's why I'm not missing it so much anymore, mm-hmm. but I'm sure I will eventually, but I haven't yet, which is just shocking. It's very unlike me. I will say that. I'm also <laughs> like on zoom meetings all day long. So maybe I'm getting my like social fill by like talking to people on zoom all the time. These, these interviews that I'm doing with my guests, this is like, this is my, you know, um, socialization. Yeah, I can imagine. It's, it's great. Um, what knowing that relationships and support are so important for our health, both mentally, emotionally, and physically. Um, what are you doing to maintain those strong relationships with people outside of your household during this time? Yeah. Um, so we've opened up our bubble a little bit to like one or two friends, like I, like I said, and that has been helpful. You know, we both promised that we're not going to go out partying and we're not opening our bubble out to anybody else. So that's been something that we've been able to do is, um, talk to friends that way. But, but also, like I said, I mean, being in academia is, also weird because a lot of my friends live across the country. So Mm. Sarah and Jacob, I have a dear friend who lives in California, um, one that lives in DC. So like my, my friends that I've had the longest actually don't even live in, in Knoxville. So I'm kind of 
lucky in the fact that I'm used to connecting with my friends over different means, whether it's Zoom meetings or, you know, texts or Gmail chats regularly or emails regularly. I have been able to keep those connections and, and check in with my my friends, you know, to make sure that they're doing okay mental health wise in this in this time as well. Um, one time I some friends who are in town, we did a a porch dinner where we all mm. sat six feet apart on a porch and ate the dinners that we bring. And we did that a couple of times. And and that was uh, really, really nice as well. In fact, I need to call them and schedule another one soon. Um, but just trying to be creative in how you reach out and talk to people to make sure that you stay safe and also other people stay safe too. Um, I've gone on walks with friends where we stay far apart and we're outside. Now, if this all continues into the winter, I think my outside workarounds may not work anymore. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have to think of something else. But thankfully in summer, we've, I've been able to do some outside stuff. That porch dinner sounds like a lovely idea. It was really, really fun. And you know, six feet apart isn't too far apart where you have to shout or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. um, so it didn't feel... I mean, how we filed into and out of the porch was a little bit awkward. Um, <laughs> but other than that, it was, it was, it was fine. And it was lovely to see people too. You know, I will say I've been texting and, you know, G chatting friends, but it isn't the same as talking to them face to face for sure. So how are you juggling, um, you know, maintaining your relationships, your teaching, your research, your podcast, mm-hmm. your all of the things. What 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 is a day in the life of Patricia Robertson like? <laughs> um, so I had a friend one time that you know said the term work life balance is is just for the birds. It should they should call it something else. <laughs> just true. It's not a balance, right? Like um, work life blend might be better. Um, I've heard that said before. Too. Have you? Yeah. Um, <sighs> So it's, you know, it's different every, every day. Sometimes um, it's a lot more work, especially with the kids at home. And, you know, I have meetings back to back that I have to be a part of. And I say, sorry, you guys are going to have to watch. And and maybe my husband has to go into the work or, or the field or, or whatever. So I'm like, sorry, kids, you're going to have to watch um, Octonauts for this morning. And such is life. You know, I had to, I had to also give myself that grace that like, listen, this is not going to be the perfect setting for the kids this, this time. Sometimes they're probably going to watch a little bit more TV than they should. But, um, I also have to put, um, food on the table and, um, Mm -hmm. keep my job. So, so, and sometimes, you know, I realize I haven't really played or hung out with the kids in a while and I don't do any work that day. And I just hang out with, with the kids or at least a half a day or whatever. So it's been, less balance, less blend and more like a seesaw maybe is how I've been Mm -hmm. handling it. Like sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just full on work and then sometimes it's just full on kids. But um, I I can't do them simultaneously well. Um, So it's it's either or and trying to at work, um, you know, I I am behind on, on several projects and several things, particularly manuscripts I should be writing right now. So during the pandemic, my motive or my goal 
has been to just keep fires out and um, not really move a whole lot of things forward as rapidly as I typically do. Um, and just give also give myself that that grace that it it's not going to look like it used to right now in terms of productivity. But I'm going to keep fires out and co-authors who are mad at me for being super delayed. I'll try and get to the maddest one first. So um, I don't know. I'm trying to. I think we're all still trying to figure out exactly what that that looks like. Um, I think this fall as school kicks off, it'll look a lot different. Um, I don't have any teaching responsibilities in the summer. So I'll mm-hmm. have those responsibilities on top of um, the research work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. I'm My goal is not too many tears, but if I have to cry, I cry. And if I have to um, make a co-author angry, all I can do is apologize and hope that they understand. I Hopefully I, everyone is just going to give everybody else a little bit more slack right now. I, I really, really hope so. It, it kind of is what it feels like right now um, is that people are giving each other slack. But my concern is that if this ends up lasting a whole entire academic year, that's a really, really long time for especially junior faculty like myself to not be at peak production. But I think I'm going to have to cross that bridge when I when I get to it. I, I think worrying about it right now will only slow me down. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to I'm trying to be a good enough parent, and I'm trying to be a good enough employee. I'm not going to be the best. I'm not going to be great. I'm just hoping to achieve good enough is my current goal because <laughs> I think that's all I all I can handle. Good enough is good enough. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Throw that on a bumper sticker. Do it. Make that a meme. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just the the pressure um, to perform. It just doesn't... It doesn't have a place right now. Right. Things are so different. And it's interesting, too, because... I mean, you were alluding to gender differences uh, previously, but what mm-hmm. we've also... What we know, particularly in academia, is this... Um, pandemic has been really, really harmful for um, women in academia. The The mm. ratio of people uh, of people submitting journals has changed dramatically. It used to be a lot of maybe 40, 60, 60 male, 40% women as first authors. And in some journals, it's as low as 10% um, females wow. submitting. So it, it, it is certainly going to be very uh, impactful for females in academic academia and their their careers. Hopefully, we'll be able to spring back from it. Um, but at this juncture, there's certainly nothing much I can do to change that curve. But it it'll be interesting to see how it impacts the long term trajectory because papers or like currency in academia Mm. and it's how you get promotion and it's how you get to full, uh, how you get tenure and how you get to full professor. And so it'll be interesting to see if there is a lag in tenure and promotion in a couple of years, um, potentially caused by this COVID uh, epidemic. I think we'll definitely be feeling the repercussions of this, you know, far in the future and ways that we, and ways that we might not even be able to 
conceive of right now. I agree. Do you think that women are not um, publishing as much right now, mainly because of motherhood and the responsibilities that go along with that and no childcare? Yes, 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. There, there's also research in academia that says, you know, men and women both can take um, uh, maternity and paternity leave. And it and it appears that when men take paternity leave, they actually benefit from it. They are more productive where women don't tend to do work during that time period. Um, so even though there's a lot more egalitarian relationships throughout um, certainly that's not necessarily the case. It's certainly not the case enough to not affect those averages. Wow. Yeah, it was shocking. Those numbers, I will tell you, like I like to think that it is not as gendered because uh, my relationship, I, I think I see it through my lens. My relationship is not is not gendered. And then I see these numbers, and I'm like, holy crow, like this is wild i could not believe the numbers were that stark it was amazing yeah i'm like i'm just trying to take this in um especially because you know you think of academia as being very progressive right but i guess you know there was a long period of our history when women weren't even allowed to go to college exactly and you know a so lot we've of had to catch up yeah and you know a lot of the t- the the highest ranking um, faculty, the full professors, there are much more um, men, particularly white men, than there are women and people of of color in those in those mm-hmm. upper um, upper roles, those most senior positions. And that's, I mean, those are people in their late sixties, early seventies. Not all of them, of course. Um, <laughs> I know plenty of full professors who are in their late forties, but it it. Um, it, it is a, it is a legacy for sure, and academia needs to work to to fix it. You know, you you mentioned legacy, and I'm thinking about how you saw both of your parents. You had them model, you know, what it was like to be in academia. You had uh, your mom, you know, getting her PhD when you graduated from high school. That's right. What a what an amazing role model mm-hmm. um and and what a privilege for you to get to see that and there are plenty of people that don't get to see what that looks like that Absolutely. don't have that privilege and how knowing that many of the full professors air quotes out there are um are white males yeah is is academia doing anything like collectively or uh, on a on a smaller level to try to you I, know? I think that there certainly are efforts being made. Um, for example, um, you know, making an effort in when. I mean, it starts in like PhD programs, right? They tend, PhD programs overall tend to be wider and tend to be more male dominated. Even in a female dominated field like marriage and family therapy, when you look at the PhD programs compared to a master of programs, it's almost, it, it can be as much as 50, 50 men and, men and women, which is not at all the reflection of um, master programs and who is practicing in the field, right? So it is interesting. There's this, pipeline um, limiting to limiting to women 
and limiting to people of color. So that I think is the, the first step that a lot of PhD programs have started to do, both my program at UC Davis and the program here at the College of Nursing, um, being mindful and purposefully recruiting people of color and women, though women is not as much of a problem in, in nursing, into PhD programs in order to launch them in, into an academic um, career. But those numbers, I mean, if you think it takes 15 years from your, you know, your first assistant professorship job to get to full professor, that's a huge lag time where you're losing a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. And we also know a lot more women compared to men go into these adjunct faculty roles rather than a tenure track position. For whatever reason, men tend to get hired more readily in um, tenure track positions than adjunct faculty positions. And adjunct faculty positions probably pay a quarter of tenure track positions, maybe mm -hmm. more than that, but it is, it is uh, really, really low. So there is also something to the pathway for entering into tenure track that for whatever reason, and I don't know if I know the answer to it, I'm sure other, other people do, um, men are getting into, men, men and particularly white men are getting into these more coveted tenure track positions compared to uh, women and people of color. Hmm. And that's still ongoing. The last data I looked at that had that was, Four years ago here at specifically here at, at UT. And why why is that? You know, adjunct faculty usually can get at any university. They don't really worry about hiring their own for that. So women maybe who have a family and they don't want to uproot their entire family may be more likely to take that adjunct faculty position than move somewhere to find a tenure track position. Mm. Um, so something to certainly be solved in academia. Don't know if I will do it, but <laughs> I will cheer on the person who, um, who does. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot to think about. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while, I think. Um, and I have just one last question for you today. Um, I ask all of my guests, you get to choose. Okay. There's, there's question A and question B. <laughs> um, and it's not a multiple choice. <laughs> It's an essay. Oh my, okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just, you know, I'm just like thinking in school terms now. Um, okay, so the first, the first option is to tell us about a time when you had to insist on yourself or on getting your way. And the second option is to tell us about a time when you insisted on the success of another woman. So... Let's go with, um, all I can think about is what I, the story I told you with the diabetic foot ulcer study. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I will talk about a time similar. I was talking to a person in um, integrative medicine. He's a fantastic human being. Um, he's a med doctor. And we were talking about, you know, all of the alternative medicine strategies to coping with cancer symptoms and this and the other. And it's like an example of when I had to really go to bat for my research about the importance of family and um, marital relationships. And I, I gave him all of this research just off the top of my head about how important it is. And he was like, Oh, wow, that's amazing. He was like, Can you send that research to me? And I said, Yes, absolutely. 
I can. And so I did. And about six months later, I was in a meet, another meeting with him and he brought up to somebody else. He said, did you know how important marriage and family relationships are to health outcomes and started quoting all of the research? And I was like, listen, he internalized it so much. He's oh. now like sharing this to other people. Now, it would have also been awesome if he was like, oh, Patricia gave this information to me. Um, it's fine. It's fine. Um, I did not advocate for myself in, uh, in calling him out in the moment. But it was a nice moment to realize that like that is that is a change I made, right? Like that is somebody who sees dozens of patients every single week. And before then, he wasn't asking about their family. Um, mm. And now he's at least considering it. He's at least aware how important family is and these close relationships are. Um, and he's, you know, impacting people's lives because of it. So it's nice to know that even though I don't practice therapy or, or work directly with patients that may be in some small capacity by advocating for my point of view, um, I can perhaps um, help people who are going through a heart cancer diagnosis or whatever the health outcome is, um, perhaps helping them a little bit indirectly through other doctors. I have a big smile on my face Yay. right now. I feel like I'm capitalizing. Yes. Um, I feel like so, like that is so cool to think that this thing that you're doing far away from personal contact with patients is you are like helping improve people's lives yep. and their health. Hopefully. Like, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> it was a great capitalization I, too. I really felt it. I loved it. It was fantastic. I loved it. Good. I'm glad I've been practicing. <laughs> no, <laughs> not really. <laughs> Listen, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known. <laughs> oh man. I I just, you know, if you want somebody to get excited about something, I will bring me on board. Done. I love being, you know, I love being a cheerleader. Now I'm gonna say, like, I'm gonna put this on my on my resume. A professional capitalizer. Do it. I love <laughs> that so much. I am so appreciative of your time. And, and thank you for asking so many great questions. That was felt amazing. Thank you so much. That was amazing. You're welcome. Travis, my husband, my Mr. and Sister, he gets to listen to all of these conversations because he's editing the show. So this morning, while I was on the toilet, he came in to get ready. And, and just so you know, the toilet part of the bathroom is separate from the sink part of the bathroom. There's, there's a door, there's some privacy. So, you know, it's, it's okay that he was in there. But, you know, I'm, I'm there warming the throne and <laughs> he starts talking to me about something. I don't even remember what it was. I was really engrossed in trying to find some vegan vitamins that will boost my hair growth. You know, really serious, vital information. So I was just kind of giving perfunctory answers. I wasn't really paying attention to him. And then I heard him stop talking. And then he said, wow, you're doing a really great job capitalizing right now. 
<laughs> Oops. <laughs> so there's that. The new season of Attached starts tomorrow, September 1st. So be sure to give Patricia and her co-hosts, Dr. Jacob Priest and Dr. Sarah Woods, a listen wherever you get your podcasts. They're going to be dishing out some good science-backed relationship advice. If you're loving in sisterhood and you want to insist on the success of our show, there's a few ways you can do that. First, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Second, join us on Patreon. We have membership levels to fit every budget, and even just supporting us with $3 a month makes me do cartwheels in my living room. We even have a membership level for the go-getters out there who are looking to grow their businesses through sponsorship. Learn more at patreon.com slash insisterhood. Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Patricia Robertson. Tune in next week for another Real Talk conversation with an inspiring gal. Really, I insist. <laughs>